Are you ready to experience something extraordinary? Cultural gems in Croatia, ancient temples in Asia, art in Italy. We'll take care of everything. Flights, accommodation, excursions, local guides and all that planning. Travel department. Let's see more. I'm Michael Lester and you're listening to the Senior Times podcast. Now, back in the 1970s, something of a musical revolution took place when a bunch of like-minded young guys got together to fuse traditional Irish music with rock. They were indeed called Horselips and their impact on the scene was quite amazing in terms of album sales, live performances and so forth. Well, today I am delighted to be joined by one of the founding members of the group, Jim Lockhart. Jim Great to see you. How are you keeping? Likewise, I'm not too bad. Thanks, thanks, Michael. It's very nice to see you too. I didn't know what you were going to come out with there when you said a bunch of. I was wondering <laughs> what, sort of rep, what sort of reprobate type term is <laughs> going to come out. But we, yes, like-minded individuals. We, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we try and keep these things as polite as we possibly <laughs> can. civil. Yeah, <laughs> observe the niceties. I want to talk to you, Jim, about the start off of horse tips and how essentially you guys got together because you're, you're from different backgrounds in different parts of the country and so on, like Barry's uh, from Tyrone, Eamon was from Mead, etc. etc. Uh, how did you get together? Um, I knew Eamon from he, Eamon and a, a guy called Peter Fallon, who now is a pu- publisher of poetry and a poet himself. Um, Peter is Peter has the gallery press in Oldcastle in County Meath. Yeah, and himself and Eamon um, were both uh, writing poetry, sort of very publicly in Dublin. And it was a time when po- poetry was very much a, a thing. It was like the time of the Liverpool poets Adrian Henry yeah. and Roger McGough and Brian Patton. Um, and uh, Eamon and Peter weren't weren't exactly the same as that, but they had a, a kind of an Irish version of it and. They used to run these um, poetry workshops and uh, young people would go down and sit around and read poetry. Um, and I think it's starting to happen again a bit. You've got kind of slam poetry sessions uh, happening in New York and here and different places over the last couple of years. Anyway, that was um, they were going on. So I used to go down there and I'd see Eamon around the place. It was a small town at that stage. Dublin mm. was small. Everybody kind of knew everybody. And... Um, it was really, it was really a kind of like Grafton Street was a village, yeah. you know, and like everybody who hung around town sort of knew everyone else at least to see. Um, so I knew Eamon from there and um, I met Barry in UCD because we were both in the Cummins Ramiak, the, the, the Dramatic Society, the Oskwelge, um, and we'd be traveling around the country doing one act plays and three act plays at Feshna and Kochadrov and God knows what else. Um, so we met up at that and then Barry was a year ahead of me in UCD uh, and when he left he joined Arc's advertising agency in Harcourt Street which is just around the corner from UCD where UCD was at the time in Arts for Terrace and Eamon joined the same place and there they met up with an English guy called Charles O'Connor who had come over when he finished his art studies in Middlesbrough Art College Mm -hmm. Uh, where he had been playing traditional music because they had a Cayley band in Middlesbrough. Um, and um, so he started playing, Charles started, Charles was playing down in Donahue's and playing with Tommy Peoples and yeah. Liam Weldon and people like that. And um, 
one day there was a, a commercial being made and they needed a band for it and they didn't like the look of any of the bands they got in and so they asked somebody said doesn't O'Connor play guitar and what about him and doesn't he play drums because like, he had played drums as well he was playing drums with Tara Telephone at that stage which was another experimental kind of music mm-hmm. and poetry group uh, but also they had they had bits of kind of medieval music influences um, Barry played guitar uh, Barry was Barry was playing with um, two or three of his mates Phil O'Carroll and Brendan Corey and they used to do sort of Peter Paul and Mary type yeah. uh, folky harmony which was the thing at the time you know and um, anyway somebody said there's a couple of musicians in the agency why don't we just get them together and we'll make up a band so they did and they said we need a keyboard player and um, Barry said well hang on I know this guy who plays organ I said great uh, where, where is he I says um give me 20 minutes I'll go and find him <laughs> and at the time I was I was doing the masters and uh, I was given tutorials uh, in economics. God bless the mark. My poor pupils. I mean, if they knew anything about economics at the start of my lessons, they knew less at the end. So I was streeling up through Stephen's Green late to give a tutorial. And Devlin comes running down with the sweat popping off him and says, um, come here, come here. You play the organ, don't you? I said, no, I never played the organ in my life. I play piano all right. Yeah. And he said... Uh, come up we're doing we're doing the, come up and tell them we're putting a band together in the agency um, tell them you play the organ so I said okay and so they went in and they said uh, so I believe you play the organ I said yeah I played church organ for years yeah, yeah. oh great okay so I mean we were only miming anyway so it didn't make any difference yeah. and so we mimed and we and um, it was great fun for the day and there were kind of people dancing around in front of us one of the people dancing around in front of us in this mocked up little mini disco was one Paul McGuinness who later found fame as U2's manager. Yes, of course. Among other things. Um, so, I mean, it, that's what I mean. It was that small a town. Everybody was kind of in everybody yeah. else's pocket. So, uh, you know, we thought that was great gas. Be great. We went off and had a meal afterwards and thought that was great fun. Wouldn't it be great, great gas if we actually did have a band? So then we thought, actually, why not? Uh, so we started yeah. playing together. And then because um, Charles played traditional, I played traditional, and Eamon's grandfather, I think, had been in a Cayley band or had had a Cayley band. And Barry had these um, traditional local songs from around Loch Ney, where he comes from. He's mm. from a place called Arbo on the shore, western shore of Loch Ney. And um, so there, was the, there were these kind of various influences coming in. Um, and, and they just kind of started to bubble up to the surface. Yeah. And the other thing is that, like, at that time... Um, the kind of market for everything is Atoma is to now and broken up. And so you have stations playing hip hop and stations yeah, playing heavy yeah. rock and stations playing this, that and the other. At the time, what we had was Radio Aaron and that played a bit of everything. So there was traditional music with Kieran Makmahuna and Prunchies O'Conlon. Uh, and so you would hear really good, proper, like you'd hear Shannos and you'd hear mm-hmm. stuff that Kieran had recorded down the country. Um, and... Um, you have to remember also that at the time, um, sort of right through right through the the fifties, Irish music had been really looked down on. We were yeah. in the in the depths of a kind of post colonial self hatred phase, and um, you you couldn't get arrested um, doing Irish music. Sean O'Reilly utterly transformed that in nineteen fifty nine nineteen sixty with the music for Misha era. And suddenly everybody sat up straight and said, what in the name of God was that? You know, yeah. and that really was a, 
total revolution. Dave Fanning's brother, John Fanning, um, just brought out a brilliant book uh, in the last couple of months called The Mandarin, The Musician and the Mage, in which his thesis is, he developed it from a PhD thesis, and he's saying that what happened between 1956 and 1966 was a cultural revolution equivalent to what happened in the the Gaelic revival between 1890 and 1910, and that the three people who were pivotal to it were T.K. Whittaker, who's the Mandarin, yeah. who who wrote the, the, the first economic expansion plan and sold it to Le Mas. He was Secretary of the Department of Finance. Uh, Sean O'Reilly, who uh, had been in the Abbey as musical director in the Abbey, and uh, then got the gig of doing the music for Misha Era, and then also set up Kiltori Kool and revolutionised the way we heard traditional music. And the third, the, the mage, as he calls him, the poet, was um, Thomas Kinsler, who did the revolutionary translation of the Thoin into English in 1968. And it turned out that Kinsler had actually worked as a secretary to Whitaker in the Department of Finance um, years before, and Whitaker had encouraged him because Whitaker was a very sort of urbane, civilized man and knew a lot about this sort of stuff and was very into it. So he encouraged him to write poetry and encouraged him to do his translation, particularly the time. And when O'Reilly first came to Dublin, he apparently dust for a week in Kinsella's flat in Baggett Street. Yeah. So you've all these anyway. So um, as I was saying, I was talking about the radio. Uh, in those days, in the radio, you got a bit of everything. You got some classical, you got yeah. some folk, you got some jazz, whatever. Not a lot of jazz. Uh, and then we got our rock and roll from listening to Radio Luxembourg under the bedclothes at night. Um, so, like everybody had been exposed to lots of different styles of yeah. stuff so it wasn't any kind of big deal for them to sort of slowly kind of meld themselves together so that's kind of how it that's the sort of genesis at very long-windedly apologies that's the genesis of it yeah sponsored by expressway with my expressway free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations are you interested in trying a new smartphone but still a little unsure? Do you want a phone that offers larger icons with louder sound and an interface that has technology designed for seniors? Well, why not choose from the Doro range by simply visiting doro.ie? Doro, make friends with innovation. In actual fact, I think it's also fair to say that you guys, when you came along, you also helped to give a, a reboot or a boot to traditional music because it got young people who were fans of horseslips and rock music, but it got them involved in it as well. And, and there was, I think it's fair to say, Jim, there was an expansion of traditional music through the 70s, which you guys contributed a huge amount to. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm very proud. I'd be very proud to think that that was the case. And I think there was a certain element of, I mean, a lot of traditional people thought um, that we were doing desperate things to traditional music. Um, there was uh, a man from Coltis in Wexford who had a front page story in some local paper down there about these long-haired reprobates were raping Irish <laughs> traditional music. Um, uh, you know, slightly bypassing the fact that we weren't actually playing traditional. We were using yes. the traditional element as an influence in the kind of rock and roll that we were playing in the way that like... Um, Osabisa were using African music or Santana were using Latin yeah. influences, that kind of stuff. There was a lot of fusion going on at the time. So um, 
what what I think we may have helped to kick back against was that kind of post-colonial um, sense of of inferiority, mm. um, because people thought that ah, that old diddly eye, it's crap, isn't it? Really, you know, it's, who wants to listen to that? Uh, and even though Rhea had transformed things, there were a lot of people yeah. who still wouldn't wouldn't bother listening to him. Like Bono wouldn't have uh, have any interest when he was growing up, as he has said in Irish music, Phil Chevron of the Pogues yeah. um, also uh, said that when he was growing up, he had no interest whatsoever in Irish tradition or Irish music. It was exactly what they were rebelling against mm-hmm. and um, it was the last thing they wanted to hear. And it was through listening to us that they then started to turn around and say, well, hang on a second, they're, they're kind of following on from Oreda. Maybe we should check out Oreda. And then from Oreda, yes. they went back, a lot of them, and started checking out the, the basic stuff. But at the time, I mean, we weren't alone. There was like the chieftains were were, of course. were at the time carrying on the, the legacy of Oreda. And then you had Planksty and the Bothies and Moving Hearts and, and then everybody else, Alton and uh, whoever. Yeah. You know, it, all, it all started to kind of snowball. But it really, and also the Johnsons, in fact. And... Yeah. Sweeney's men who were around yeah. in the late 60s uh, Andy Irvin um, uh, Terry Woods and Johnny Moynihan who were absolutely brilliant and really kind of mould breaking at the time there was a, they were they were great and they really kind of um, upturned a good few good few apple charts as Bertie would say yeah <laughs> Your first album, Happy to Meet, Sorry to Part, which was just an absolutely, may I say to you, a brilliant fusion of what you guys were trying to do, you know. And it just it just seemed to just hit people kind of straight away, you know. 
And, and uh, in actual fact, helped by the design of the, the cover of the album, which I think Charles did in the shape of a concertina and all that. Yeah, Charles was Charles's gig in Arcs in the ad agency was as a as a designer, and so we had we had a designer in house. Yeah, uh, and he was he was really he was amazing. He was, was really groundbreaking because he he produced this very elaborate design with like loads of pages and a gatefold sleeve Sorry. and cutouts in the shape of a concertina, an eight sided yoke, which had never been seen or heard of, and um, so that really. Um, set the cat among the pigeons and it created a real sensation but I think we had kind of been making people listen over the previous year year and a half mm -hmm. since we had kind of started out we got we, we were start we started out with our first gig oddly enough before we did any gigs was a session called Found on RTE yeah. six part I think um, and there were other people Bridgie and Gilroy and I can't remember who else was on it there were various other musicians and singers on it um, and we were on kind of experimenting and, you know, with uh, long hair and yeah. looking, beards and beards <laughs> and kind of looking weird. Um, and people people were kind of a bit shocked by this. And then they heard us playing um, guitars along with concertinas and stuff in a way that hadn't quite been done before. Um, and so we had built up a bit of a head of, a head of steam before Happy to Meet came out. Yes. Um, but then what in retrospect appeared to me to have been happening was that um, people kind of recognize this stuff as their own mm -hmm. and that there hadn't been a demand for it because it hadn't been conceived of yes but then once it was there people latched onto it in the way that like when the Clancy brothers came home from New York having kind of honed their balladry from Tipperary yeah, yeah. in New York but in the in the sort of American folk scene um, and they came home and, and launched this back against uh, to an Irish public and then the Dubliners and um, this was stuff that people hadn't heard before even mm -hmm. though it was our own music yeah. and that was the kind of popular end of it, the popular songs in English and uh, remember the Dubliners started bringing uh, Joe Heaney, Joseph Heaney singing Shannos onto their concerts and that was what a, 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 probably the first time a lot of people would have heard Shan notes. Yes. Barney McKenna was playing jigs and reels on the banjo, um, so there was um, there was all that kind of going on. But people had latched onto that with a kind of sense of propriety. This is our music, mm -hmm. in the way that like I don't know if it happens to you, but sometimes at the Patrick's Day Parade when I was growing up, I I you know the the, the pipe bands would come along, and You'd hear all the brass bands and the American high schools and all the stuff. And then this pipe band would come along playing, I don't know, the Boys of Wexford or something. And a chill would go down your spine, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. This is really, this, it, it's, almost, it's almost genetically inbred or something. It really felt like this was, this was our own stuff. And I think that that resonated with people. Mm -hmm. um, and then when we went on to do the Thine for the second album, taking our uh, ins inspiration from Thomas Kinsler's recently published yes. new translation of it, um, that also the thing about myth uh, and one of the reasons that we kept being attracted to it and attracted back into it was that mythologies have a very kind of deep resonance uh, and that that kind of they said about Bob Dylan that one of the reasons his songs um, struck such a bell with people or struck such a chord with people uh, was that um, he was 
doing so much acid or whatever he was doing <laughs> at the time that he was accessing elements of his subconscious like and therefore elements of a kind of Jungian collective unconscious yes uh, like hooded figures in darkness going through a wood that kind of image uh, which you know you don't particularly see in Greenwich Village, <laughs> um, but there was something kind of um, there was something in that, and I think that that kind of resonated with people, even though they had no direct knowledge sure. of it. And I, I I sort of suspect that it was the same with the um, the mythological stuff um, as well as the musical stuff from our end. But then also we were coming we were coming across um, kind of correspondences between um irish music and rock and roll rock and roll having come from a fusion or a collision between yes blues and uh country music american country music and american country music started off as bluegrass which started off as irish and scottish and english yeah. country music yeah. played on fiddles so um there was a kind of pentatonic element to both of those, to both the blues and the bluegrass, yeah. like a, a, where it, uh, the, the, the oldest and the simplest of the melodies are five notes, not eight notes in a, in a, in a scale. Um, and a lot of Irish stuff would have had a similar kind of pentatonic origin. Uh, and we also heard kind of correspondences between the drone on the pipes and slide guitar. And so we use that a bit mm -hmm. on Happy to Meet, um, on Glanton Glossquid or whatever, Paddy's Green Shamrock Shore. Yeah. Um, so there was, I mean, like it was, it was wide open. It was kicking an open, an open goal. You know, there yeah. was loads of interesting paths to go down.
that second album that you mentioned, The Thorn, uh, of course, that delivered for you guys mm. like one of the, the enduring songs in Irish rock music, which of course is on Jarrett Doom. Mm. Yeah, and um, that was, um, that had come out, I think, on Aria the Sagetti, um, played by Kiltori Coolen. And it was just one of those magic tunes. Yeah. Because O'Reilly o- had unearthed a lot of stuff that had originally been published in Bunting's collection of Irish music. Bunting started collecting in Belfast. He started writing down the tunes played by the old, the old harpers, the yes. remaining dozen or so, if there was even a dozen of the older harpers, be, uh, before the tradition finally died out. That was 1792. Um, so Bunting's collection w- also included a lot of Carolyn stuff. Um, and O'Reilly kind of unearthed a lot of this and dusted it off and polished it up and one of those, it wasn't written by Carolyn but I think it was in Bunting, was uh, O'Neill's Cavalry uh, Mark Louis Nail, O'Neill's Cavalcade Mm. Um, and so we were playing around with this uh, for a while and uh, did stuff like doubling the length of the riff turning it from just a a, a motif, a, a melodic motif into a riff which yeah. you would use then as like 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 whole lot of love um, yeah. where you would use that as, as a as a riff and repeat it and build a song over it so instead of concentrating on the melody of the of the tune itself we used it as a kind of framework to do the other song over to do the the, the lyrics of Jarek Doom over which Eamon had written about Cucullin mm-hmm. um, and yeah, it, I mean, I remember us being. We were we did it in in the front room over 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 our shop over my parents' butcher shop in James Street. Yeah, uh, we used to rehearse upstairs, and I'm sure he must have deafened the people uh, coming in for their half pound a lap. Um, and um, yeah, that was that that actually felt very right the first time we did it. I mean, it felt like this yeah. was slotting into place. Yeah, uh, that was good. Back in those days, you, you operated quite a lot, apart from outside Ireland and the tours that you did. But within the ballroom structure in Ireland, which was, of course, huge in the 70s and all that. And I remember a few guys played in Chewham, where I came from and all that kind of stuff. You just, if you weren't there early, you wouldn't get in. I mean, it was just like that, kind of, you know. It must have, it must have felt amazing to be, to be part of that whole setup. It was, and in a way, we kind of took it for granted. Um, it hadn't happened before. There were two distinct scenes in terms of music in Ireland. There was the show band scene, yeah. and the show bands played in dance halls up and down the country, which would hold anything between 1,500 and 4,000 people yeah. of a night. Uh, maybe not four. I know some of them actually would have squeezed in three and a half anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they'd be going most nights of the week, particularly at the weekends, and because there were no discos this was before sure. discos yeah. so that, that was where people heard the newest records and the show bands would go off and listen to whatever they heard at radio luxembourg the night before practice them up so they were kind of like the djs and the, yeah. and the discos of the time and um, there were country bands and there were pop bands and never the twain should meet you know there were there were two kind of completely different oh, schools yeah but they played in the same yeah. halls whereas um the, the rock groups or pop groups, uh, which were known as beat groups at the, in, in the late 60s, um, had a much narrower kind of sphere of influence and played in small beat clubs in the cities, in Dublin, Belfast, mm-hmm. Cork, uh, Limerick, Galway. Uh, and 
they were they, there wasn't very much future in that you'd get a couple of hundred people in but you know uh, when our we, we we early on we we began to be managed by a guy called Michael Deeney <coughs> who was a, himself and Paul McGuinness had set up this concert in Dublin and they, we were on it and he approached us afterwards and we'd been talking to various other managers like Phil Solomons and people like that yeah and hadn't kind of settled on anybody and we kind of liked the cut of Deeney's jib and um, he was an accountant and he had been to Oxford and spoke with a slight affected stammer and a bit of an, an Oxford drawl over, overlaid on the genteel Northern Ireland accent um, and, and dressed very well. It was, it was a very imposing kind of a character. Uh, and we got on well and we had a good laugh yeah. and so he became our manager and it was Michael I think who reckoned who sussed out initially that there was this ready-made circuit all around the country and um, pop groups or rock groups weren't exploiting it and why shouldn't we and so he set about it yes. and before we knew where we were we were actually doing you know we had built up a bit of we were doing smaller halls around the country like I think it's St. Joseph's Hall in Longford, different places here and there. There's a few bigger halls that were kind of halfway houses between like little cellars where you'd hear rock and roll and kind of proper dance halls. Um, like there'd be parish halls mm. where stuff would happen. Um, but they weren't they weren't a kind of great long-term bet. Uh, so Michael kind of wedged us into the dance halls and, and we sort of said, okay, grand. And so you we were playing in front of 2,000 people. As far as we were concerned, it was great, you know, just yeah. keep on going. Um, and then it just built up and, and I think a lot of the dance hall owners were um, quite surprised to see us bringing in yes. a lot of kids who weren't their normal clientele at all. Like as far as they were concerned, these were the popsters. The popsters were coming in and, and they, weren't, they weren't dancing the way you'd expect them to be dancing. They were just kind of standing around and looking <laughs> and then hopping up and down. And uh, as one of them said, hey, Jesus, they were going hilarious in here last night. <laughs> Um, so uh, it was that was a bit of a novel phenomenon, and, yeah, yeah. And, um, and we suddenly found we were competing with the likes of Big Tom. That we'd have a good crowd if Big Tom wasn't down the road and hard done it, you know. <laughs> An will phone poke a new wet, an will knappy no fum nis orja wet. Nis eskalehusaj, faker na phone intakata gwin, on sho, egg daro. An von klishte is dani, gidi gohan la hai glina, agus taskina. Tarod egen, gogachtina. Tanismo olis, egg, daro.com.